It's the end of the month, which means it's time for a media spotlight. I have been criticized in the past for recommending books by Protestants to Catholic circles. Interestingly, no one's criticized me yet for recommending books by Jewish authors like Dr. Laura Schlesinger at the end of last month. Um, it seems that the, I'm sorry, self-righteous Catholic rage is specifically against Protestants. Uh, sometimes it's definitely warranted, but not always. And we need to understand that it is part of maturity as a Catholic to be capable of engaging with non-Catholics, taking what is excellent and then seeking to elevate the rest. You've probably heard from some source or another that Jesus loves us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us that way. And that is true for every single human being. Two weeks ago, we talked about the church being in a second age of apostolic mission. And you cannot evangelize if you're totally unwilling to engage non-Catholics. This willingness to engage non-Catholics is something that children need to be raised into with intentionality and purpose. When it comes to child rearing, to formation, there are three distinct phases, the three P's, protect, prepare, propel. And please understand as I share this, I, I speak as a child in this regard, not as a parent. My own children are very young, but my parents gave an excellent example to myself and to my four younger siblings. In the first part of a child's life, we protect them. We censor, we filter, we ensure that what information reaches them is age appropriate. The church has very strong words for individuals who trespass on the child's innocence. And the church terms this period of protection the latency period. And if you're interested in reading more about that, I've linked an article uh, from one of my mentors, Layla Miller. In this, in this phase, my parents were careful about who we were left alone with, what books we were borrowing from the library, etc. At some point, however, around puberty, the child hits the prepare phase. The natural changes that our children encounter naturally give rise to questions. And we want our kids to be able to engage the world from a place of faith. So we start talking about difficult topics within the context of the faith, helping them to begin to process the great moral dilemmas and even evils in the world, like abortion, through the eyes of Christ. Christ who loves the world and its brokenness, hating sin, but ultimately wanting to raise us up out of that sin. The prepare phase is where I started really noticing that some of my friends thought very differently from how my family thought. And this is where it's so important to understand that puberty is an age where forbidden things are all the more attractive. However, and this is where many secular parents make a huge mistake, what makes forbidden things less attractive is not extreme permissiveness, but rather a sound grounding and logic. We've talked before in this podcast about natural law being the first law that God lays down. Children associate sound logic and reason with adulthood. 
They may not like the conclusions that they come to, but they do enjoy feeling trusted. They enjoy feeling like they have good sense and good judgment. And that's all to the child's benefit if a parent is taking care to form them properly. I think an important thing to remember also is that the church considers the age of 14 to be a spiritual adulthood. That's what confirmation is. Confirmation is where the child says, I am a Catholic because I want to be Catholic. I choose to be a soldier of Christ. This is at 14. And that's also the basis for the church's uh, teaching regarding marriages um, being valid if the wife, if, if the bride, I'm sorry, if the bride is at least 14 years of age and the groom is at least 16 years of age. This means that the church trusts that at the ages of 14 and 16, young men and women have the ability, have the capacity to make a lifelong vow like marriage. If we're not raising our kids that way, we're the problem, not the church. The church has always had incredible confidence in the capacity of young people to follow the teachings of Christ. It wasn't easy for my mom when I started engaging very heavily with non-Catholic peers, but she and my dad had raised me to want to be logical, to want to be reasonable, to want to know what I was talking about, to want to know the why behind things. And so by the time I was 16, one of my best friends was a self-proclaimed atheist, and that was okay. I wasn't raised to be afraid of what he thought or why he thought that way. And to this day, he's still one of my closest friends. And at some point in our 20s, he decided he wasn't an atheist anymore. But more importantly, with regards to my own formation, he challenged me. My faith was strengthened through trying to answer his questions. Again, we were really good friends. He wasn't afraid to challenge, and I was not raised to be afraid of taking that challenge on. We had some very fiery debates in high school, but ultimately I came out a much stronger Catholic, and that made a huge difference, I think, when I entered college. Which brings us to our third phase, the propel phase. And this should actually begin well before a child leaves home for something like college. You want to be present to the child when they do begin to engage the world because they're going to continue to have harder and harder questions. They're going to have insecurities. They're going to have fears. They're going to have disappointments. And it's still your job as a parent to be there for them as they begin to process these experiences. I think what distinguishes the propel from the prepare phase is that during the prepare phase, kids are learning that there is a right place and a right way to seek answers. In the propel phase, parents should be showing a lot more trust. If they've prepared the child well, then this is the time to be saying, hey, I've done my best to prepare you. Now it's your turn to demonstrate that you've learned well. When I meet Catholic adults who are afraid to engage non-Catholics, my instinct tells me that they were overprotected 
and that their prepare and propel phases during their formative years were lacking. If we want to transform the world, it isn't going to be by holding ourselves aloof from it. That is not the meaning of being in the world, but not of the world, which is specifically the job description of the laity. We're not supposed to be haughty. We're not supposed to be disdainful. We're supposed to recognize that within every human heart is a deep desire for truth. And that oftentimes people look in the wrong places, but they are looking. And many of them, when looking in the wrong places, don't have anyone to help them to know any better. Therefore, it is our job to be there, to meet them where they are. You know, if something isn't truth, we shouldn't be afraid to fight it. And we shouldn't get angry that that's our job as Catholics to fight the lies. But more importantly, if something is the truth, we shouldn't be afraid to claim it nor should we be angry that others have sought it and succeeded in finding it, no matter how small the piece. When Catholics get angry that non-Catholics have found pieces of truth, it shows just how badly they misunderstand what it means to be holy. Because those who are holy rejoice at everyone else's increasing proximity to holiness. Truth is never something that we begrudge people for discovering. And of course, it is essential to note that the church, not in her dogma, but in her practice, is heavily broken. Catholics are just as broken as everyone else out there, as is evidenced in part by the fact that the divorce rate among Catholics is just the same as among non-Catholics. The difference is we have the assurance of a God who can take that brokenness and transform it if we allow him to. Now what about this teaching that there is no salvation outside of the church? I'm going to take a minute to address this and I want to state that I didn't come up with a framework of this explanation, um, explanation myself. This is an explanation I've heard given by Father John Ricardo and I've linked to the video where he gives this explanation. I've modified it slightly and of course I'm giving a heavily abbreviated version so bear with me. Think of a Lego set. It's probably a mix of special pieces specific to that set but also some normal pieces, normal Lego bricks that you could find in any number of other Lego sets. Now what the church claims is that she, and she alone, has all of the pieces for the Lego set that can build the perfect whole human being. But that's not to say that the pieces cannot be found elsewhere. What the church claims is that she alone has all of the pieces, all at once, at all times, and always has. But certainly you can find bits and pieces elsewhere, and that's good. That's good for our efforts to evangelize the world because for there to be a healthy, transformative dialogue, it is almost always necessary to start from a place where we agree, to start from a place of commonality. This explanation should not shock us. Truth is truth regardless of where it comes from. And it should not anger us either because we want the whole world to be saved. I've met a lot of Catholics who get angry when you suggest that truth can be found elsewhere, which is mind-boggling. Another great explanation of this, which is 
kid digestible <laughs> is found in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, where the Pevensies encounter Emmeth. Emmeth is a young man who dedicated his life to serve the god Tash. And so he's very confused when he's welcomed by Aslan. Aslan explains to Emmeth that Tash cannot receive acts of goodness, even when done supposedly in his name, and that Aslan, by contrast, cannot receive acts of evil, even when supposedly done in his name. When someone is sincerely seeking truth, when they find an authentic truth and live by it, it doesn't matter where they came across it. Now, why be Catholic then? Well, precisely because the church has the fullness of truth. Why would you want to waste time groping for pieces everywhere else once you know the source of all truth, where that source is located? And that, of course, brings us back to the original question. Why recommend non-Catholic materials? Because even though the church contains the fullness of truth, this does not mean that she has succeeded in communicating those truths to the modern world in a way which the modern world finds either attractive and or digestible. Some Catholics bristle when they hear that the faith needs to be attractive. Well, ladies, it does. Conversion has to happen in the heart. One's heart needs to be moved to be converted. What else would you call something that moves your heart except attractive? Now, attractive doesn't mean dumbed down. It just means attractive. <laughs> so why this book? Yes, it is written by a Protestant. And occasionally she does make reference to scripture from, of course, a Protestant standpoint because she's using a Protestant Bible. But if someone is going to dismiss this book based on that fact, they're going to miss out on a ton of solid information. And the information is solid because of the author, Shanti Feldhan's methods for collecting the information which she presents in this book. For Women Only is the title of the book. And it was written with her husband's help. Already there, that's a big bonus. I hate it, <laughs> hate it when women write about men without actually bothering to consult them. And instead of presenting man-verified truths about men, present instead their feminist projections onto men. Now, Shanti also includes multiple transcripts of conversations with her husband and her father. Again, two huge bonuses. But the bulk of this book consists of Feldhan's presentation of men's responses to surveys which she designed and compiled with the assistance of professionals. The men she surveyed ranged from ages 21 to 75 and were not limited in demographic by faith or occupation or marital status. She says, quote, I interviewed close friends over dinner and strangers at the grocery store, married fathers at church, and the single student sitting next to me on the airplane. I talked to CEOs, attorneys, pastors, technology geeks, business managers, the security guard at Costco, and the guys behind the counter at Starbucks. I even interviewed a professional opera singer, a household name movie star, and a former NFL offensive tackle with a Super Bowl ring. End quote. 
Before launching into each section of the book, Shanti presents the parameters of the survey, the wording of the questions, and the outcomes as bar graphs with percentages before she shares the interpretation of the results, again, backed by her conversations with her husband and her father, among other men. The largest survey group numbered 1,600. It would have been great if a Catholic had been the one to think of writing a book like this, of coming up with surveys and putting them out there and taking note of the lack of variance in responses, despite the, the incredible variety in demographic. It would have been great if a Catholic had undertaken this work, but they didn't, and that's okay. Another objection that I've received is that Protestant sources will inevitably have a Protestant angle. And my response to that is two parts. Firstly, you can't make a blanket statement like that. The implication when this objection is raised is that a book by a Catholic author will have a Catholic angle. And I'm sorry, but any serious Catholic today knows that that is a truly impossible blanket statement to make. There are so many poorly formed Catholic authors putting out stuff that is more out of line with actual Catholic teaching than their non-Catholic counterparts. Authentic Catholics are keeping lists of problematic Catholic authors and sharing those lists with other authentic Catholics so that everyone is forewarned. That's how bad it is. If you're going to do the work and vet Catholic authors, why not vet non-Catholic authors who appear to be sincerely seeking truth? And that's the second thing to remember. Catholic truths are universal truths. The word Catholic means universal. That's how you have someone like C.S. Lewis, who was ultimately better formed than most Catholics today. When it comes to marriage, there are a lot of non-Catholics out there who are much better formed. That's one of the reasons I started this podcast. There are Catholics out there who insist that Ephesians 5 indicates that husbands and wives should be mutually submissive, mutually obedient to each other. What the heck does that even mean? And moreover, is, it, is, is such a concept supported by the rest of scripture, by the tradition of the church, and by basic natural law? No, no, and no. Discernment is part of the daily life of the mature Catholic. There are absolutely some things that we stay 310% away from. The occult, for example, which is fundamentally contradictory to the Catholic faith based on the very first commandment. But if you have a Protestant presenting universal truths in a better way than Catholics have done up until this point, that's not something to get upset about, or at least not at the Protestant author. If we get upset at anyone, it should be at ourselves for failing to lead the way as Catholics in the sincere pursuit of authentic truth. And then we should use that to motivate ourselves to do better, to be the examples of excellence in all things, to be saints. Now, in her book, For Women Only, Shanti Felton presents universal truths about human beings. She says that she and her husband discovered that, quote, the majority of relationship problems do not stem 
from big, intractable issues. Instead, they tend to spring from basic human cluelessness, from simple, avoidable misunderstandings, from a light bulb on moment that never happened, end quote. The very first topic that Feldhen treats is wifely respect. She says, quote, feelings often follow words or actions rather than the other way around. For example, if you regularly disparage your husband to him or to your friends, don't be surprised if you feel contempt. But your choice to show him respect can change your feelings. In fact, your choice to show respect can transform your entire relationship. End quote. And she also issues this challenge regarding respect. Quote, if you are in conflict with the man in your life, do you think it is legitimate to break down and cry? Most of us would probably answer yes. Now let me ask another question. In that same conflict, do you think it is legitimate for your man to get really angry? Many of us have a problem with that. We'd think he's not controlling himself or that he's behaving improperly. But Dr. Emerson Egricks, author of the groundbreaking book Love and Respect, has an entirely different interpretation. He told me, in a relationship conflict, crying is often a woman's response to feeling unloved, and anger is often a man's response to feeling disrespected. End quote. This book is broken up into eight parts and introduced by Feldhen, giving what she calls a surface-level understanding, followed by a brief sentence, taking that surface-level understanding one step further into the subject matter which she intends to cover as an explanation. I'd like to read through those now. As I said, the first section she has is on respect. She says our surface understanding is that men need respect, but what that means in practice that we need to understand is that, quote, men would rather feel unloved than inadequate and disrespected, end quote. Second, on the surface level, that men are insecure, but in practice, quote, despite their in-control exterior, men often feel like imposters and are insecure that their inadequacies will be discovered, end quote. Third, on the surface, quote, men avoid issues by checking out, end quote. But in practice, quote, men address issues by first pulling away to process and think so they can better talk about them later, end quote. The fourth section is regarding men being providers in practice, Quote, even if you personally made enough income to support the family's lifestyle, it would make no difference to the mental burden he feels to provide. End quote. We'll come back to this one in a minute. Fifth, surface level. Quote, men want more sex. End quote. In practice. Quote, your sexual desire for your husband profoundly affects his sense of well-being and confidence in all areas of his life. End quote. The sixth section was probably the section that was most helpful to me, this truth about men being visual. I learned so much from this section. For this part alone, reading the entire book was worth it for me. So in practice, quote, even happily married men struggle with being pulled towards life and recollected images of other 
women, end quote. And I just want to say that that may sound horrible and terrifying, but the whole section actually made it less horrible and less terrifying than I had previously considered this truth to be. It was very helpful. Seventh, surface level idea that, quote, men are unromantic, end quote, but actually in practice, quote, most men enjoy romance, sometimes in different ways than women, and want to be romantic, but hesitate because they doubt they can succeed, end quote. And finally, the eighth part, which was the second most impactful part for me to read, definitely not something I had previously spent much time thinking about. On the surface, quote, men care about appearance, end quote. In practice, quote, you don't need to be a size three, but your man does need to see you making the effort to take care of yourself. And he will take on a significant cost or inconvenience in order to support you, end quote. So these are the eight topics that Shanti explores in her book, again, supported by a ton of research and augmented by transcripts of conversations she had with her father and her husband, among other men. Now, there is one little part, actually just one sentence in the entire book, which I feel could be misinterpreted to the detriment of a marriage. And that sentence is from the section on men being providers, where she's talking about how we can support our men as providers. It reads, quote, that may mean showing our willingness to bring in more income ourselves or expressing excitement about staying with friends at the beach in the off season instead of going on that romantic Caribbean vacation, end quote. I think that if you read the whole book, you're not likely to mess this up, but it's worth flagging and addressing just in case. Showing our willingness to work is, I think, Simply a matter of demonstrating our trust and willingness to obey should our husband ask us to work. And you know, we did a whole series on this, the compensating series, which has so far seven parts. What it does not mean is preempting our husbands, suggesting that we relieve him by working. Because if a husband is in a low place where he's already struggling to provide, a suggestion from his wife that she needs to work can be taken as criticism, as an attempt from her to rescue him because he is inadequate. It can be taken as a sign that she doesn't think that he can take care of their family without her having to make up for some level of incompetency on his part. Again, I think if you read the whole book, you wouldn't make this mistake because Felton is pretty clear about this concept of men taking offers of help as criticism as indications of their inadequacy, but it was worth addressing just to be safe. I want to leave you with one last quote from this book, which pretty much sums up the whole nine yards. I love this quote. It is not the average man who needs to be less sensitive to a woman's words, but the average woman who needs to be more sensitive to her man's feelings. End quote. The book is Shanti Felton's For Women Only. This is a must read for every wife, and I would love to hear what you think of it. Feel free to leave us a message on our Facebook page or anchor site, and happy octave of Easter. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you, and we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.